This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Acts chapter 20, uh, we find uh, the Apostle Paul uh, has gathered a group of pastors together to give them some instructions, Uh, and the instructions he gives them are really critical, and where we kind of find out uh, what the Lord's heartbeat is for pastors and how that they would uh, lead the church, lead the church well, and then we find all throughout uh, the rest of Paul's writings and even some of Peter's writings how pastors should... uh, facilitate the ministry that God's given them uh, and the uh, qualifications of the pastor and things like that. We'll cover those tonight as well. Uh, Acts chapter 20, we're starting verse number uh, 17. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. That word elder, we'll find in just a moment, can be used synonymously with the term pastor. So anytime you see elder, pastor, bishop, all three of those words can be used interchangeably. So uh, he called together the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons. Serving the Lord with all humility of mine and with many tears and temptations which befell me at the lying and waited Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Now behold, I go bound into the Spirit, into Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying in me, uh, saying saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither I count my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and receive and the ministry which I have received of the Lord to testify the gospel of God. And now behold, I go, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter into among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears." And now, brethren, I commend you to God with the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all that are with him and are sanctified. And I've coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I showed you all things, how, so that laboring you ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all, and they wept sore and fell upon Paul's neck and kissed him, sorry most of all for the words, the words that he spake, that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied them into the ship. So Paul, his last opportunity to spend time with these pastors, tells them, hey, here's how it should go. Here's what being a pastor looks like. First of all, you need to protect the flock and feed the flock. Secondly, you need to protect it from false teachers that are going to come through. Hey, you saw my life. You saw the work that I did. I warned you of of things that you need to be warned of. I taught you the Bible. I went from house to house, encouraging people, praying with them, helping them, shepherding them, guiding them. And so here you really see Paul's heart for the office of the pastor 
He would give more clear uh, details as far as who could fulfill those offices and how to do it well uh, in his letters that he wrote to Timothy and to, to Titus as well. But here we see in this passage of Scripture the heart of a pastor. Uh, and again, this heart was not developed by Paul. And here's, here's Paul's view on pastoral leadership. These were God's views on pastoral leadership uh, recorded for us in Scripture so that we can follow. Now, if you want to flip over really quickly to 1 Timothy chapter 3 in your Bible, again, Paul giving instruction to Timothy, who is a, a young pastor. And so, uh, again, when it comes to the office of the pastor, age is not necessarily an issue. It comes down to uh, the biblical qualifications. Uh, Paul even tells Timothy, let no man despise your youth. Hey, you're a young guy, but don't let people hold you back because you're young. But when you begin to identify candidates for pastoral leadership in these churches, here's the things that you can look for. Again, if you remember, the church at Jerusalem was all together one huge church uh, with a apostolic, apostle, pastoral leadership there. Uh, then we see that, that James, the brother of Jesus, kind of took on a role of, of uh, senior pastor, if you will. We'll talk about that a little bit more maybe next week. Uh, and then the church receives persecution. Everybody scatters to the four winds, and these churches pop up elsewhere. Basically, just a group of people uh, gathering together, uh, preaching the word, uh, studying the word together, praying together, loving each other, encouraging each other, uh, trying to, to tell people about Jesus. There wasn't really kind of any clear direction that was given. And so Paul, as he writes to Timothy and Titus both, he says, hey, you need to identify men that can lead these churches, and here's the things that you look for. First Timothy chapter 3, uh, starting in verse number 1, we see the biblical qualifications of a pastor. So again, First Timothy chapter 3, verse number 1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, again, that word could be used for pastor. He desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth his own house well, house well, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how should he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach of a snare of the devil. And it goes into the qualifications of uh, the leadership requirements for uh, deacons as well from there. So we take a look at the biblical qualifications of a pastor. First of all, we see that he must be above reproach. Uh, that's the word blameless there. The idea is not that he's, he doesn't sin because all of us are sinners, this pastor here included. The idea is that if, if an accusation is made against the character of a pastor, he can be held blameless. Uh, in other words, there's no uh, mark on his character that's going to hold water. If people make an accusation uh, against his character, that it, it basically has no merit to it. Uh, Paul goes on even to Timothy because uh, Paul said, again, if you remember it in Acts chapter 20, Paul says, hey, some of you that I'm talking to will end up actually trying to build a, a kingdom for yourself and you will become the wolves that we're trying to protect people against. So Paul even gives Timothy guidelines. Hey, if, if somebody's going to make an accusation against a pastor, it can't just be one person. It has to be two or three more people to make an accusation against the character of a pastor. And so again, uh, we see the requirement that he be blameless. Next, the husband of one wife. Uh, again, some people, again, the, the literal interpretation of this in the Greek is a one-woman man. Some people have said, well, that means that, you know, uh, a pastor, uh, if he's married, uh, can only have one wife. I, I think it says he must be the husband of one wife. I interpret it that way. Again, other people uh, interpret things differently. Uh, it's totally up to them. 
It doesn't matter to me. At the end of the day, I believe this passage means that he must be a husband of one wife. Now, again, some people look at that and they say, well, if a guy's been divorced and he's been remarried and he's been with this woman, then he's technically the husband of one wife. I don't think that's the spirit of this text here uh, because then, again, how many times could one be divorced? You know, uh, could I get a, a different wife every other week and have, you know, 25 different wives in a year as long as I only have one at a time? I don't think that's the spirit of the text. And so, again, if, if marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, which it is, is what Paul tells us, then that union has to stay together for a lifetime because that's how Jesus is committed to his church. And so again, I believe the qualification of being a husband of one wife is a biblical qualification there. Now again, and the fact that a, a spouse passes away, or uh, I know many good men whose wives pass away to, to illness or sickness or things like that, uh, that have gone on to continue to pastor and, and been remarried, things like that I think are appropriate in the, the particular situation. But as far as divorce and remarriage, uh, that would be a disqualifying factor according to Scripture from the Bible. Uh, next. Uh, the pastor must be self-controlled. That's that word vigilant that we find there uh, in that passage. So again, a, a person who has no self-control. Temperance is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if a pastor is not showing temperance or self-control, that means he's not spirit-filled. And we can't have a pastor who is leading a congregation that is not spirit-filled. Next, uh, must be sober-minded. Uh, again, that means serious or in the ability to think things through, things through uh, on a serious level. Uh, proper and appropriate, so where we get the word of good behavior. This is not a person who's making inappropriate statements or inappropriate conduct or has been in improper situations and handled things poorly. Uh, these would be disqualifying pa- factors for pastoral leadership. Now, I will start this and say, as we go through this list, the things in this list, some of these are things that once you are no longer qualified, you're never qualified again. Somebody loses his temper, you can say, uh, this guy's always an angry guy, and so he doesn't fit the qualification of being self-controlled. Maybe he needs to take some time away from the pulpit and and focus on his walk with God and can come back in a more spirit-filled, kind manner. Someone has an affair on their wife, you don't get to come back to the pulpit from that because, first of all, you don't meet the qualification of being blameless. Uh, You know, you're inappropriate with church funds and run off with, uh, you know, $10,000 that belongs to the church. You're no longer worthy of respect and honor, even amongst people who aren't even Christians. And so that's why it grieves me so many times to see these churches, again, where the pastors are under no leadership of themselves, uh, have no accountability to anyone else, even their own church body, who leave their wife, find a new wife, and then start a church, and they call it like second chance churches. Like, oh, uh, my, my, my story is a story of grace. I blew up my first marriage, and then I found my true soulmate, and God's given us second chances. If you're here today, and you want a second chance, this is the place for you. No, you don't get the opportunity to do that. You leave your wife for another woman. You're done. You'll never pastor again. Now, can God use a person like that all day long, just not in pastoral ministry? That's all. Again, it doesn't mean to say, say that God's done with you, God can never use you, things like that. Uh, again, uh, it's not saying that you're not qualified for service to Jesus. You're not, you're not qualified for the office of a pastor. And so again, as we get down through this, and, and uh, you see pastors who have blown their lives up with alcohol or drugs and things like that, hey, again, you've disqualified yourself from the office of the pastor. Now again, other ways that you can serve in the church, for sure. Uh, other roles you can fulfill, definitely. But as far as pastoral leadership, uh, you have forfeited the ride by not being biblically qualified. That's why sometimes people say, well, we're all sinners. Who are you to judge? I'm nobody to judge. I promise you that. But the scripture is everybody to judge, right? I don't have any ability to say that somebody's qualified or unqualified. That's not my call to make. The scripture makes that call. And you have 
a pastor who had uh, been in an inappropriate sexual relationship with someone or there had even been sexual assault to his character, the Bible disqualifies that person from ever serving in the pastoral leadership role ever again. And churches that turn a blind eye to that, I think will be held responsible before God for having an unqualified person leading the church and standing in the pulpit proclaiming the word of God. So again, as we look through this list, it's important to understand some of these are things that maybe we can grow in and some of these are things that you'll never recover from this and you'll never be able to fulfill this role again. Uh, Next we see uh, given to, uh, to hospitality. I love the word hospitality in the Bible. The Greek word that's used there is the Greek word philoxenon, where the, the idea of that is to make a stranger your brother. Uh, it's where we get the, the word xeno in, in our, 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 our language. Like if somebody's a xenophobe, they don't like people from other countries or people that are different from them or people that they don't know. And so the idea of philoxenos is the idea that I'm taking a person who is a stranger and I'm making them a brother. That's what hospitality looks like. I'm inviting people into my home. I'm sharing meals with people. I'm spending time with people that I don't know, but I make them immediately feel part of the family. One of the things I love about who we call is it's an easy church family to break into. All you got to do is just show up and you're automatically uh, roped in. Uh, and so I want to encourage us to keep that spirit of hospitality in our church. And that's one of the requirements of a pastor as well. Next, apt to teach. Uh, again, the idea is not that this person can, is the best flame-throwing preacher from the, the, that can preach the word like nobody else. It's not somebody who is entertaining. Can they teach people the word of God? If you cannot teach the word of God, you're not qualified to pastor. Simple as that. Now again, does this person have to be dynamic, engaging? Does this person have to plumb the depths of prophecy and eschatology? Does this person have to be able to have uh, the entire Bible memorized? No, they need to be able to break down the word of God so that people can understand it. Now again, some of that is, is hard work and dedication and commitment. Part of that is spiritual gifting that we find in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gift of teaching, uh, the gift of prophecy, which is basically foretelling what God said. But a pastor and someone who takes on the title of pastor in the office of a pastor has to be able to teach the word of God. Next, not a drunkard. The uh, King James here uses, says not given to wine. The, the word that's used for that in the Greek literally means not a drunkard, uh, basically. So again, uh, I believe wholeheartedly no one has ever been made a better Christian because of alcohol. I'll go to my grave saying that. If I ever say anything otherwise, somebody needs to remind me of what I've said before. Because I sat on the other end of the table far too many times and heard the lies that have been destroyed by alcohol. And for anybody to say that alcohol is a gift to a Christian we can celebrate and use in, in, in uh, you know, moderation and things like that just doesn't understand, first of all, how alcohol works, the detriment that it has to the Christian's life, to the Christian's family, to the church family, and also the detriment that it does to society as a whole. And so again, we don't have time to get into it tonight. If you want to talk about it, we can talk about it later. But the idea of, of alcohol in the Bible is not the same alcohol that we have today, period, end of story. And so again, the pastor can't be someone who is a, an alcoholic, a drunkard. When you do that, you, you no longer are qualified for pastoral ministry. And I can't, I have lost track of the number of pastors in the last decade that have lost the ability to lead a church because of their problems with alcohol. And it's always interesting to me that the alcohol always bleeds into other poor decisions as well sexual inappropriateness, lewd comments that they make, inappropriate statements that they make, things along those lines. Look, it, it never helps. Just stay away from it. And if you ascribe to the office of a pastor, this is something that you shouldn't even look at. Next, uh, the, the, the phrase here is no striker. 
And again, if you look it up in the, the Greek word there, it literally means one who's not a bully. I like that because the idea of striking, you think of like someone who, who hits or something like that or someone who's violent in some way. But the idea here of being a bully, I don't know if you've ever heard, unfortunately, from the pulpit, somebody ever used their pulpit as an opportunity to bully people. It's really ugly. It's ungodly. It's, um, it's damaging. And I'll go so far as to say this, it's probably on some level, some level of spiritual abuse. And I'm not talking about hard preaching or preaching against sin. I'm talking about belittling, demeaning, and just being unkind. For example, somebody might say, who is a bully. You know, we had outreach yesterday. For most of you, you probably didn't know that, or maybe you did. You just had better things to do than reach the lost. We had 25 people at outreach yesterday, and while we might stop for a second and praise God for that, that that might be, you know, 10%, 8% of our church family, that means 92% of the people in this room don't care about souls. And you're like, my kid had a football game. Like, I couldn't make it to outreach, you know. I, I had a coworker in my home this past week and shared the gospel with them. I'm praying that they'll get saved. Like, where do, you know, you get no credit for that because you didn't show up to the one time a week that we have outreach. And some of you really need to rethink your priorities. You should be ashamed of yourself. You should be, that's bullying behavior. That's backing people into a corner where it's just like, hey, like, nah, I'm not feeling that at all, you know. And that's why, again, that type of behavior has no place in the pulpit. Now, it's important that we understand that there's a line here that, between preaching against sin and bullying. You're going to hear me say here, uh, if, if you say who we call it for any length of time, you're going to hear me say this. Some of you need to repent of your sin. Some of you should be embarrassed by the way that you're living. Some of you are bringing reproach upon the name of Christ. That's not bullying. That's just preaching the Bible. And here's the thing, I need preaching like that. I need somebody to keep that in front of my face so I don't lose focus of what's important. But then at some point, people cross a line. <laughs> you know, there's, there's people who use their pulpit as an opportunity to call people out publicly for things they'd never say to them privately. You know, we got a man who serves here as an usher who got his hair cut yesterday morning instead of going to, to outreach, you know. I'm not going to say who it was, and then people start looking around like, okay, what ushers do we have that have a fresh haircut tonight, you know? And it's just like, wow, okay. No, instead of pulling somebody aside, they'll use their, the pulpit, and you think to yourself, does stuff like this really happen? <laughs> You'd be ashamed to know that it happens. And again, the pastor should not be one who is a bully and uses the opportunity to shame or demean or, or intimidate people by any stretch of the imagination. We're supposed to be like Christ drawing people to Christ. Not a lover of uh, filthy money. Again, uh, it's not a, a sin to, to have wealth if God's given you, if God's blessed, blessed you in that way. It's a sin to seek wealth and seek status and for a lot of it to, to become uh, your, your primary focus in life. And so a lover of filthy lucre, that means filthy money. The Bible uses the word patient here, but that word means gentle and kind. It's another qualification of a pastor. People should not, I'm just gonna say this and leave this here for a second. People should not fear their pastor. And my wife tells me um, that people are scared of me, and I don't understand that. Like, I really don't. And she's like, you're big, you're intimidating, you know, you have this gruff look to you. She says, I have a resting, angry face. And I know nobody here <laughs> believes that. Nobody believes that, right? 
funny story, like we had our family photos done a, a few years ago, and the, the photographer was just like, try to make like a serious face, and so I like gave it my serious face, you know, like the smolder that people do, where their eyes are like kind of squinted, squinted, but they're like staring off in the distance, and every single one of them, I look totally angry, like I'm about to rip somebody's head off, right? And so even today, I'm standing there as people are leaving, it's Mother's Day, and I'm thinking to myself of all the things that are going on in my brain, and people, new people that I met, people that I didn't see today, and people I need to follow up on, and, and things I need to talk about, and things I need to talk to other people about, and things along those lines. And I'm sitting there leaned up against the, the, the counter on your way out, and somebody looked at me and they said, Pastor, are you upset about something? And I said, no, why? And they said, you just got this like really harsh look on your face. It's just like, my wife says it's my resting angry face, I'm sorry, you know? So again, if that intimidates you, first of all, let me just say, I'm just a big teddy bear for sure. I, like, I, I have no malice towards anybody. I'm not angry. But people shouldn't fear talking. To, like, I want to bring this up to pastor, but like, I, I'm scared. You know, I'm worried. I'm fearful uh, that I think he might like blow up on me or, or erupt or something bad's going to happen. You should not fear your pastor because one of the qualifications of a pastor is that he be gentle and kind. Next, not argumentative or quarrelsome. That's what, that phrase, not a brawler. This is not somebody who's always looking to stir up trouble. This isn't someone who's looking for an, an argument or a fight that they can get into. Again, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacekeepers. I, I'm not trying to start fights. I'm trying to stop fights. I'm not trying to get into an argument. I'm trying to, to bring peace to a situation. Now, again, I'm going to bring peace by bringing something that's very divisive. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And so the word itself is going to be divisive. If I sit down with an unsaved person and share the gospel with them, that's a, that's a, 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 op, a um, harsh situation maybe, offensive to them in the fact that, that I'm asking them to change and agree with God. But at the end of the day, it can't be because I'm looking for a fight or looking for an argument. And that's not covetous or the desires of things that they don't have. And, and again, uh, that, that would definitely factor into idolatry. Next, rules his house well. I love this because it basically the idea behind it is, is that if you can't take care of like your wife and two kids at home, how in the world are you going to meet the spiritual, physical, emotional needs of an entire flock of people? How could you do that? You can't even handle three people in your house, much less handle other people's drama, stuff that they got going, baggage that they got. And so the idea here is that this person has to, again, not have perfect kids because none of us have perfect kids. Uh, again, not have a stellar example of kids, you know, where, where you know, your daughters are the pianist and your boys sing back up in the, in the, the worship team, you know, your, your son preaches whenever you're out of town. Not like that kind of stuff, but they handle themselves in an appropriate Christian manner. And when they don't, you handle it. There have been times where my, my kids have stepped out of line, and as a, a loving father, I had to discipline them. And so again, it's not a matter of a pastor having a perfect household, but it's a matter of he rules it well. He's the spiritual leader of his home. He pours into his wife, he pours into his children, and he helps them to walk with Jesus and that their children be in submission with reverence. The children, again, not perfect, but they respect the authority and the leadership of, of their father. Now, the question comes up, sometimes people ask, they say, well, do you believe that this means that pastors should be required to have children? Again, this is my interpretation. I'm just going to say that it's my interpretation, not necessarily even the, the standard for our church, but here's how I read it, okay? It doesn't say if he has children, they should be in subjections. It automatically assumes that he has children. And so I would say, from my perspective, I believe that pastor, people in the office of a pastor should have children because 
if, you, if you've never dealt with like rebellious children before, it's very easy to say things like, oh, your children should submit to you. Yeah, have you ever had a five-year-old before? Well, they should just listen. Yeah, I know they should, but they don't, you know? My four-year-old won't stay in her bed. Well, then keep spanking her. I spanked her 12 times last night. Well, maybe you should make it 13. Have you ever had a four-year-old before? Like, you don't, you don't understand that. And so, again, I think it's important that, that pastors, if they're leading people and giving guidance and spiritual wisdom to people, that they have a little bit of experience to back that up. Now, I know good men that pastor that don't have children, and sometimes people say, well, what about people who don't have children or can't have children? Uh, I, I would say that I believe that they should adopt because I believe that adoption honors and glorifies God for sure. And what a better picture uh, of love for other people than the, the, the process of adoption. I mean, really, that's the greatest love that you can get because that's the type of love that God showed to us. Now, I have good friends who disagree with this, and I'm, I'm not going to fight them against it, about it. Uh, I wouldn't consider somebody a false teacher or unqualified for pastoral ministry uh, if they don't have children. Uh, but I, I would say uh, that the, the having a wife, I, I believe that's, in my opinion, that's a non-negotiable. That if, you don't, if you're not married, you, you don't have the ability uh, to pastor. And so, again, good people disagree on that. That's the way that I see it. I just want to put that out there. Is that's my interpretation of that. Next, it says that he must not be a novice. Uh, that word novice, I, again, I love the Bible because uh, so much of where we get our words in the English language come from the original Greek language that this was written in. That word novice literally is the, the Greek word neophotos which is where we get our word neophyte from. The word neophyte means someone who is a new believer or new convert to a, new, to a type of religion. That's what the English word neophyte means. So this person can't be a new convert. And so sometimes people think the word novice means that they have to really know the Bible inside and out. And again, knowing the Bible really well is, is definitely a qualification. But the idea of novice is this can't be a guy who got saved nine months ago. This isn't somebody, we're not gonna make somebody a pastor when they just got saved a year ago. Uh, they need to have some proven track record of faithfulness to Jesus and walking with Jesus for an extended period of time. Uh, also, they need to have a good testimony, even amongst unbelievers. Uh, again, if you take a look at verse number seven, um, I believe it is. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. Without what? That are outside of the church. Lest he fall into reproach and a snare of the devil. So again, when someone has a terrible testimony in their workplace, they're not qualified to fulfill a role of the pastor because people know that you're, you're a terrible human being terrible excuse for a Christian. So here's the thing. I need to have not only a good testimony in my local church, I need to have a good testimony at the gym that I go to, at the, the bank that I go to. I need to have a good testimony everywhere that I go because if my testimony is damaged, then the testimony, first of all, of Christ is damaged, and secondly, the body of Christ is damaged by having a pastor who does not have a good testimony. Again, this is why when, when pastors uh, are embroiled in scandals of any sort, and it makes the news headlines, guess what? Now everybody knows your misdeeds, you're probably more than likely for the rest of your life disqualified from pastoral leadership unless something miraculous happened where you're able to turn your testimony around. Because now, amongst unbelievers, they look at you and go, wow, the pastor of that church is a dirty, rotten snake. Shame on him. So again, we take a look at this list here. It's a pretty extensive list. It's a pretty comprehensive list. There's a lot of, a list, there's a lot of different qualifications that you have to meet. So who can be a pastor? Not just anybody. And again, I'll, I'll make it clear in case you didn't catch it on the way down this, that the first thing is they must be blameless. Secondly, they must be the husband of one wife. That means any female who tries to take the office of the pastor is biblically unqualified to hold such an office and is not truly a pastor at all. 
That's what it means. So if you, can, if you find a church that has a female pastor, just assure yourself that there's false doctrine somewhere because they have agreed that the leadership of their church would be led by biblically unqualified people that have chosen to lead. And so that's why, again, it's really important that, that I introduce people to say, hey, I'm Anthony, and this is my wife, Angela. I am the pastor. We're not co-pastors. She's not Pastor Angela. Sometimes I've joked before in the past, and I said that my wife is the pastor to the pastor because she's like where I get my counsel and guidance and, and prayer from. I say that as a joke. She's not really my pastor, okay? But anytime you have, a, again, a co-pastor situation where one of them is a female, that's a biblically uh, unqualified situation. It's interesting as we look at this list here, 90% of the qualifications of the pastor deal with a man's character. Again, we're not talking about how good does this person preach, how many Bible verses do they have memorized, you know, uh, can they find, you know, the, the book of Job without looking in the table of contents of their Bible. No, it's, it's dealing with character. Is this person someone that we can stand up and say, this person is worthy of our respect and honor to lead us closer to Jesus? It's a question we have to ask. And again, who determines that? Who, who gets to determine whether or not this person has met these qualifications? Here's the good news. The church gets the ability to choose that. And I said, well, how does the church go through that process? We're going to get to that next week when we talk about ordination. Ordination is the church saying we recognize that this person meets the qualifications and has the capability to execute the role of the pastor. And so we'll take a look at that next week. Again, as we took a look at earlier, pastor, elder, bishop are all three titles which uh, describe the exact same office. Three different Greek words that we find in Scripture that talk about uh, this office. Uh, first of all, if you're taking notes, write down the word elder. The Greek word for that is presbyteros. Next word is the word pastor. Greek word for that is poimen. I'm going to have a, a slide up next with a verse that has all these words in it if you want to catch those in just a second. Third one, bishop, is the Greek word episkopos. Uh, those are used interchangeably to talk about the same person in the same office. And again, two offices in the pastor, the office of a deacon. We took a look at that last week. The office of a pastor, we took a look at this week. So bishop, elder, pastor, all three mean the exact same role. Now, it defines different roles and different uh, uh, execution of the office in different ways, but it talks about the same office. So it's not like uh, this guy here, he's a bishop, this guy over here is an elder, and that guy over there, he's a pastor. They're used interchangeably. And sometimes people say, well, such and so church down the road, they have, they have elders. What does that mean? I don't know. They would have to answer that question. And it's interesting, as we, even as we look through the, the Bible, the word pastor is used only twice in the, in the entire New Testament. Typically, the word elder or, or bishop is used more often. And so sometimes people say, well, why do we use the word pastor instead of bishop or elder? A couple of things that, that I would say off the top of my head, I don't, this is why I wouldn't use those terms. Uh, first of all, elder has been basically sideswiped and, and hijacked by uh, false teaching of the uh, LDS church, the Mormon church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know, the guys with the white shirts and, and the bicycles have a placard on it that says, Elder John, you know, or Elder Smith, and like you're like barely 17 years old, and you have a title on it that says elder. And so again, I believe that term's been hijacked uh, by, by false religion, so I wouldn't use that term to describe the office of a pastor. Secondly, the term bishop, I would also say, has been hijacked by the Catholic Church and the fact that they, you know, they have bishops and archbishops and cardinals and things along those lines in their hierarchy and uh, diocese and all that other stuff that, that gets into. I think, for the most part, people know what a pastor is. 
And so again, it's not the most frequently used term in Scripture. And if someone has their, their pastor's called an elder, and he's Elder Larry, I'm not going to argue with him about that. You know, their, uh, their, their pastor is, you know, Bishop Henry. Uh, I'm not going to argue with Bishop Henry about anything. The biblical words, okay? Uh, but for us, we choose to use the word uh, pastor because it, uh, it, it speaks more to the role of the pastor. Uh, we see in Acts chapter 20, verse number 17 and 18, which we just uh, took a look at uh, earlier. It says, from Miletus, take a look on the screen here, these words. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, and again, Greek word there, presbyteros, of the church. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, the Greek word episkopos, to feed, poimen is where we get our word pastor from, the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood, we also see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, The elders, Greek word there, presbyteros, which are among you, I exhort, who I am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed, poimen, where we get our word for pastor, the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight, episcopontus, therefore, by, not, by constraint or willingly, or not or filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And so here we see how these words are used, all three different words, for, for elder, bishop, pastor are all used together in the exact same verse to describe the, describe the exact same office, but the different roles of that. We'll take a look at the roles here of a pastor. Now, first of all, the pastor is responsible for setting a godly example of love for Jesus and strict adherence to the word. That's the, what the word elder means. Again, this doesn't necessarily mean that someone can't function in the role of an elder if they're 23 or 24 years old. Paul said to Timothy, hey, let no man despise thy youth. Let your, let your character and the way you carry yourself and the way that you love Jesus speak for itself. Don't let people get you down because you're a young guy. How old was Timothy? We don't really know. We, again, a lot of people make guesses, but the fact of the matter is we don't really have any idea how, how old or how young he was. But the office of the pastor shouldn't be held by a kid who's 17 or 18 years old. It shouldn't be somebody who's 21 who just graduated Bible college two weeks ago. That's not the idea behind it. Again, with the idea of an elder, this is someone who has a track record of following Jesus. This is someone we can look to and say, hey, provide me a godly example. I was uh, was texting my friend uh, Chris Chadwick this past week, uh, the Panks uh, pastor in San Diego, probably one of the best friends that I have in the world. Uh, And we were texting back and forth. And as I was studying through this, I was looking up the term elder and, again, the Greek word that's used for that. And then I looked in the Old Testament, the Old Testament word that was used for elder was kind of the leader of the group or a, a particular type of family that people looked to to follow their example. And so basically it was, it was one who led by example and people looked up to. It was the idea of the elder in, in the Hebrew culture. And the word Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word that's used there for the word elder literally means the bearded one. And I thought to myself, that's so good. And so then I texted Chris Chapik, and I was like, dude, you have no beard. You're not technically an elder, you know? And so we went back and forth for a while and, and uh, sent, sent uh, terrible gifts and memes to each other. But um, anyways, I, I thought it was interesting, but the idea here was even in Hebrew culture, this is someone that can show us the way, that can lead us, that can guide us, not by telling us what to do, but by giving us an example to follow. Uh, these have to be men of experience and maturity, and being an elder is less about age and more about competence. Again, there's no magic age that someone has to pastor at. But again, when you have a 20-year-old kid who dropped out of junior college and you call him a, a pastor, I don't think you understand the weight of this office and what that means. This, this is not an elder. 
Now, could we have a guy who's, you know, 24, 25, 26 that absolutely is 110% sold out for Jesus and living it and bringing other people along on the journey and make him a pastor? For sure. Absolutely. So it's not necessarily that there's a magical age, but at the same time, I know people in their 50s that have been saved for 30 years that have zero spiritual fruit. And, and they'd have trouble leading somebody to Jesus with a roadmap. And so, again, it's not a matter of there's a particular age that an elder has to be. It just has to be someone who is well-seasoned and competent. Uh, some uh, mainline denominations like your uh, Episcopal churches and uh, Presbyterian churches and things like that will break down the, the title of the office into two separate offices. They'll have an office called the ruling elders and then the teaching elders. Uh, and so basically these guys over here handle all the administrative stuff. These guys over here handle like the, the teaching and uh, the ministry portion of the church that people see uh, out front. Again, we don't find any place in scripture for that. It's definitely not a biblical idea at all. Uh, and so, but the idea of the elder is that this is someone who can lead us by example and show us the way. Uh, now, again, some, some churches, even Bible preaching churches, will use the term elder uh, to describe the office of a pastor. I've got no issue with that from a biblical standpoint. It's just when people use that term, I say, why do you use that? And, you know, sometimes they'll say, oh, we're an elder-led church. What does that mean? Explain this to me, and, and let me, uh, again, compare this to Scripture. Next uh, title that we see in the uh, the Bible is the uh, term overseer or bishop. Pastors are responsible for providing leadership, supervision, and oversight for the church. Let me just say at the end of the day, if there is a failure at who we call a Baptist church, the one person responsible for that is me, 100%. That's what it means to lead. Not the, the fact that, you know, I get to, to be the boss and make, make decisions and stuff like that. Uh, basically, at the end of the day, uh, I'm the guy that will stand before God for this church. I take that very, very seriously. Anything good that happens in this church and any reason that we have to celebrate in this church is 100% the grace of God and has nothing whatsoever to do with me. And so you say, so you get all the blame but none of the credit. I don't deserve any of the credit. And if anything goes wrong, I deserve all of the blame. So yeah, Absolutely. And, and so again, that's where people get hung up too sometimes. They want the office of the pastor because they want the credit. They want the glory. They want to be the guy in the spotlight. They want to be the guy bossing people around or telling people what to do or having people underneath them. You don't understand pastoral leadership then. Because in a healthy church, there's none of that taking place at all. It's all about we're submitted to Christ and we're dedicated to fulfilling the mission that God's given his church. And we want to do it with, with grace and love and Christ-likeness. But at the end of the day, somebody's got to oversee it. Uh, again, uh, I don't do this uh, solo. Uh, again, I have our, our deacons that I lean on a lot. Uh, Trey has been such a blessing to me uh, in his time here. I lean on his counsel a lot. And things like, hey, we're, our small groups are getting too big. What do we do? Hey, we're going to make new small groups. Hey, where are we going to put them? What's it, what's it going to look like? How are we going to set up? How are we going to tear down? Things along those lines. At the, at the end of the day, somebody has to make those decisions, and it's a responsibility at the end of the day for the pastor to oversee everything. Now, does that mean that I have to know who's setting up the, the canopies over in the parking lot next door on Wednesday nights at, at 6.30? I don't know, and I don't care. I just want it to get done. But please understand, if it's 6.30, and there's a line of people standing on the sidewalk because nobody unlocked the gate and nobody set anything up, you know who's responsible for that? I am. So again, when we take a look at it, someone has to oversee Somebody has to say, hey, here's the target. This is what we're shooting for, and this is how we're going to hit it. And that's, that falls back onto the shoulders of the pastor. 
uh, when it comes to things like finances and things like that, uh, how we steward God's resources, at the end of the day, I'm responsible for that. Again, I don't make a decisions unilaterally. I discuss it with our deacons. Our deacons are, are well aware of our financial situation in our church and the things that we're looking at doing and things like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, if our church can't pay its bills, you know whose fault that is? It's mine 100%. I've got to figure out how we, we're going to make it. And so, again, when it comes to the uh, requirement of being an overseer, making sure that the church continues to function in a healthy way. Again, at the same time, if two people aren't getting along, there's a, a couple of guys that are, that are at odds with one another. It's my responsibility to oversee that situation and make sure that it gets handled. And so, again, when we think of leadership, sometimes our mind immediately goes to uh, issues of, of uh, administrative oversight. It's so much deeper than that. I'm going to oversee the spiritual well-being of our church. Hey, I need to know what's being taught in Super Church. What are those, what are those kids learning over there? I need to know our teens. What are our teens learning on Wednesday night? How big is our group? How many people do we have that continue to go? Do we have any teens in our church that don't come on Wednesday night to, to our teen group? How can we get them roped in? And so it's not always uh, you know, administrative stuff and spreadsheets and things like that. It, but at the end of the day, it comes down to I'm responsible for making sure that ministry takes place here in, in a way that honors and glorifies God. Next, uh, the uh, pastors are responsible for shepherding, giving guidance, protecting, providing spiritual nourishment for the church. This is the, the term pastor, Greek word poimen. This is shepherding, guidance, protection, nourishment. This takes place sometimes from the pulpit. This sometimes takes place over a cup of coffee at Starbucks. This sometimes takes place over text messages. Sometimes this takes place with uh, sitting on the front porch at somebody's house, talking with them. Sometimes this takes place at 10 o'clock at night in the lobby here. Somebody who's about blown their life up, and I'm trying to help them keep it all together. That's the pastoring process. Let me just tell you this. Of all the things that I get to do outside of being a husband and a father, the greatest joy of my life is being a pastor to be able to help people to fix their life from the Bible, to be able to give guidance and shepherding. Hey, here's where you went wrong, and here's how you can make it right. Here's how you fix it. Here's how we get things back on track. Here's how we progress forward. Here's how we, we, we move the ball up the field together. Here's the way we collectively are going to reach our community and reach the, our island for Christ. Here's how we're going to get it done. Uh, I love helping people with their problems from the Bible. The pastors, uh, again, the term pastor here is the, the term shepherd, Pastors are the under-shepherds under Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. So sometimes you'll hear, the, not a biblical term, but just kind of an explanation of the, the role. Sometimes you'll hear pastors referred to as under-shepherds. It's my responsibility to take care of the flock of God to make sure that we keep our eyes on the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and for me as an under-shepherd, helping him to make sure that his flock stays healthy, that they're well-fed, that they're protected from false teachers, false doctrine, that they're protected from strife and disunity in the church, that we keep our, our focus on the mission, which is the great commission of reaching people for Christ and teaching people the Bible and teaching them how to be committed followers of Christ. That's the process of pastoring. Pastors are charged with feeding God's flock. <laughs> Let me say this for just a moment, too. I probably should have said this at the beginning, but... It just kind of came to my mind as I'm thinking here. As you look through the office of the pastor in the Bible, which at the end of the day is really the only thing that matters, pastors always deal with people. Always. 100% of the time. So it's strange to me when I go to a church website 
and they say, oh, here's Cletus. He's the pastor of facilities. The facilities don't need to be shepherded. They don't. They don't need to be fed. They don't need to be led. The facilities don't need to be protected from false teaching. You don't have to be a husband of one wife to make sure that the lights get shut off and the, the, the breaker doesn't trip when you plug in the coffee pot. Like, that's not a pastoral role. Oh, he's the pastor of media and arts. The media and arts do not need pastors. They're visuals on a screen. We can take anybody. Hey, the work of, of visual arts could be done by an unsaved person. It doesn't have to be someone who's qualified by 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so, again, we need to take a look at that. And, again, you look at other churches, like, oh, here's our, our pastor of, of, of children's ministry. It's, it's some lady. It's just like, you don't understand what that word means, you know, at all. And so, again, when we think of, of the term pastor, it's always someone who has face-to-face interaction with people, always. Again, can you imagine a shepherd? And you say, hey, man, where are you a shepherd at? Oh, I'm, I'm a shepherd on the third hill over the way. Oh, that's awesome. How many sheep you got? I don't got no sheep, but I got a lot of trees, man. Come again? Yeah, I'm more of the shepherd of trees over there. Yeah, man, that's not a thing. You got any sheep? No, I haven't seen sheep in a really long time because sheep's not really my thing. So I'm more of the tree guy. Yeah, that's not a thing. And so, again, when we talk about pastors, these are people who invest and pour their lives into people. That's what it's about. They're responsible for the feeding. And unfortunately, many churches that don't preach the Bible these days are n- neglecting the feeding of God's people. <laughs> There's a guy who, who came uh, this morning, was a, a brother of, of one of our church members visiting from Ohio. And he came, he's like, hey, are you associated with such and such association? And I said, no, we're not associated with anybody. We're just kind of a, just a Bible preaching church, autonomous. And he's like, are you part of such and so network? And I go, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know those people. We're not connected with them anyway. I said, why do you ask? And he goes, because like everything that you preached this morning sounds exactly like our church back home. And I go, I think we have the same source material. <laughs> and he sits there for a minute and he was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, dude, hey, anybody preaches the book of Romans, they're going to walk away with the exact same conclusion, right? It's the Bible. And so, but here's, the, here's what he was shocked by. Hey, I heard the Bible preached at my church, and it sounds a lot like the Bible that's preached at this church. They must be connected in some way, right? You know why? Because people don't preach the Bible these days. And, and so again, when it comes down to the, the, the feeding of the flock, I have to preach, I have to teach, I have to disciple. It's important to understand, too, that, that pastors are more than just preachers. This is really popular in the South, like where I grew up, people would call their pastor preacher. Hey, preacher, we're putting some fish in the, the deep fryer tomorrow night. You want to come over to the house, preacher? And they refer to the pastor. And it's, it's a term of endearment. It really is. But look, of all the things that I do in a given week, preaching is like one of the smallest things that I do in a given week. And so the office of a pastor is more than just having somebody preach on a Sunday. Like, like sometimes people want to get into pastoring, and, and they call me, and they say, hey, I'm looking at planting a church. You know, what do you think about it? And the first question I ask is, why? What makes you feel like you could plant a church from scratch that God could use. No lie, probably eight out of 10 guys that I talk to will tell me, I'm a really good preacher. Okay, let me tell you, of all the things that I do in a given week, probably 3% or less is standing back here and telling you what the Bible says. 3% or less. 
That means 90% of my week is consumed with other things that don't deal with preaching the word. So you can have somebody that'll preach your socks off. It doesn't make them a good pastor. And again, I have found that people will put up with mediocre preaching because they're loved and cared for well, rather than going to a show where somebody lights it up on stage and gets everybody on their feet clapping and encouraged, but they have no connection with anybody and they're spiritually languishing and dying. Because again, at the end of the day, it's not about having a dynamic, entertaining preacher. It's about being well cared for spiritually. And so pastors are more than just preachers, but all preachers are not pastors, but all pastors must be preachers. Again, one of the biblical qualifications, apt to teach. They have to know their Bible. They have to be willing to stand up and open the Bible and preach. So not all people who stand up and preach the word are, are pastors. I praise God that both of our deacons can preach the word well. They handle the word well. They're engaging. They're encouraging. They're helpful from the Bible. But they're not pastors. They're deacons. I'm thankful we have laymen in our church that have no office, no role, no title, that handle the word well and can preach the word well. It's engaging, it's encouraging, it's helpful. They're able to teach. That doesn't make them a pastor. But if someone assumes the role of the pastor, they have to be willing to handle the Bible well and have the opportunity to be able to preach the word. We learn the Bible through Bible, do- we learn Bible doctrine through preaching, discipleship, and also singing the word. Now again, People, I, I've gotten uh, accusations made at me before that I'm, a, I'm, I'm so controlling with everything in the ministry here. Okay, fine. Uh, but here's the thing. I'm not controlling for the sake of being controlling. There has never, in eight and a half years, almost nine years, we're like, we're like eight and three quarters years old at this point, never been a song sang from this pulpit, from this platform, that I have not personally approved, ever. And you say, well, that's really controlling. No, it's not, because I'm responsible for every single thing that you hear. If you hear a song that's biblically undoctrinal and inappropriate, you know who's responsible for that? I am. And we don't just learn Bible doctrine from opening the Bible. We learn doc- Bible doctrine by the songs that we sing. That's why I love what John brought out this, uh, this evening. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. You know what that's doing? That's teaching me that Jesus is trustworthy. This is not Christian karaoke. This is not just singing some words that come up on the screen. This is teaching you and I to trust in the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ with our whole hearts. And so we sing the word together when we corporately worship together. And so we're not going to sing some goofy song that you found on Christian radio last week that you think really has a neat bump to it. That's not what we do here. And at the end of the day, I'll stand before God for the songs that are are sang from this pulpit. And so, again, I'm really, uh, I guess you could say picky, on the types of songs that we sing. For those that, that serve in our, our music ministry, you know that if you send me 10 songs that you like, I'll probably approve maybe three of them. And usually after I've gone through them with a fine-tooth comb, and there's songs that we've sang before that as it's being sung, I think to myself, I don't like this song at all. And we'll never sing this again, and we don't. And so again, we need to make sure that what we sing is doctrinally accurate. And here's the worst part about it. Is there are so many songs that I sang as a kid that were fun and upbeat and peppy that I go back and look at the lyrics and first of all realize, what are they even talking about here, you know? Second of all, this is totally biblically inaccurate altogether. And so again, it's important that we understand that the office of the pastor is more than just stand up and preaching. I'm teaching you the doctrine not only through the preaching of the word of God, but, but by personal discipleship. And again, discipleship isn't just sitting down with a book and filling in blanks. It's teaching you how to be a committed follower of Christ. 
but also through the music that we sing together corporately as the church. We're learning Bible doctrine through that. Pastors are charged with leading God's flock. Again, we lead by example of godly character. Someone who tells you to do something but doesn't do it themselves is, is a terrible leader. It's hypocrisy. Nobody wants to, to follow hollow leadership. Nobody wants a boss as a pastor. They want someone that they can, can follow their example. And again, for anybody who would take the office of a pastor, you need to understand that your entire life just got put under a microscope. Every decision that you make for the rest of your life will be scrutinized. You will sometimes be wrongly castigated for the choices that you make as a pastor, but you're willing to do that because you believe that the benefits outweigh the negatives. Look, by becoming a pastor, I put not only myself, but my family in a fishbowl that everybody gets to come up and look and give their two cents of what they think about it. And here's the thing, I'm okay with that because I hope what you see in my life you'll want to, to, to follow yourself. You say, oh, you must think really highly of yourself. I don't. But I would say what the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Whatever good you see in my life, follow that. Whatever negative you see in my life, give me some grace and don't follow that. How about that? But at the end of the day, the pastor that you have should be someone that you look at and say, I want to follow his faith. Now, again, I, I believe it's really important, and again, personal preference here, I'm just going to say that, but I, I believe that I'm right in the fact that if you want to follow the faith of your pastor, you should know your pastor. Not just, oh, here's Pastor Jim, he's really funny, I like it when he speaks the, you know, three times a year here at this campus, and we don't have to watch him on the, the big screen, you know, he's funny. No, you need to know him, you need to understand his life, you need to understand his faith. You need to understand what makes him tick, what makes him want to follow Jesus, what's his story. Because again, you want to follow the leadership of your pastor. Pastor said, lead by example of service. Again, sometimes people get in the office of pastoring because they want to tell people what to do and boss people around. You'll be greatly disappointed if that's what you want to do because you will not be an effective pastor. There's a, a guy who wasn't a Christian, recommended a book to me several years ago, and the title of the book was Leaders Eat Last. And basically the premise behind it was if you're truly leading your people, you're leading your people by rolling up your shirt sleeves and getting down there with them and, and doing the work that they're doing and you're not sitting back waiting to be served, you're actually the one who's serving and when it comes time to do things like eating a meal together, you always make sure that everybody else is taken care of first and then you eat last. And it was this groundbreaking leadership book that was going to change the leadership paradigm of leaders in America. And I thought to myself, that's just what Jesus did, Right? That you're going to try to jump on the, the tail end of that and call it you know, servant leadership or something like that. No, it's just leading like Jesus did. He, the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. Pastors lead by service. We lead by rolling up our sleeves and getting the work done. That's how we lead. One author put it this way, and I, I love this, this quote he had. I, I couldn't summarize it any better, so I just put it in here. It says, you don't have to be a super leader to equip the church effectively. All of us have different God-given gifts and talents. Some men are endowed with great natural ability while others have more meager skills. But all of us can make disciples. All of us can pass on the faith. The Bible doesn't require you to be a visionary, apostolic, entrepreneurial genius. It does require you to be a faithful, obedient Christian who takes the Great Commission seriously and gives herself wholeheartedly to it. The fruit of that in your life should be the heritage of disciples who are walking with Jesus and leading others because of your influence and investment. Is somebody qualified to be a pastor? Show me the lives that they've influenced. And I'll see whether or not that person's qualified. So it's a pretty high, 
high bar to put. Isn't it interesting that we have a pastor here from Italy that nobody had ever met before tonight that has two families in this church that are currently following Jesus because of his investment in their life? I think that's the qualification that we're looking for. Is this person a disciple maker? Is this people have people behind them that are still following Jesus to this day because of their investment in their lives? I, I wouldn't give you a, a plug nickel for a pastor who's never led somebody to Christ. I wouldn't give you a dollar for anybody who said, how would you disciple somebody? And they say, I don't know, maybe just kind of follow my example. Have you ever had somebody follow your example? Well, no, not really, but I think that would be a great thing. Yeah, that's not pastoral leadership. Pastoral leadership is, is a group of people that we've affected. I had the opportunity to talk with Pastor Hamilton and his wife on Wednesday night. And they said, it's such a blessing, you know, as our church ebbs and flows, but we have people all around the world that are serving Jesus that we've had the opportunity to influence their lives. Man, that's the idea of pastoral leadership. Again, pouring your life into other people. Pastors are charged with protecting God's flock. Again, the idea is that our flock belongs to Jesus, but it's my responsibility to make sure that we keep it healthy. And one of the ways that we do that is we protect it. We protect the flock against false teachers and false doctrine. And again, with the internet, this stuff moves at light speed. I remember, look, when I was, when I was a kid, right, you had to like subscribe to tape ministries on the internet, right? You had to send in like a, a check stapled to an envelope and put it in the mail, and then you get like a tape in the mail like once a month. And like today... You can get on YouTube and within 90 seconds have found some of the most heretical garbage in the world and people are enamored by it. And so it's my responsibility to say, hey, these people are false teachers. This is false doctrine. We need to understand that this is why it's biblically wrong. And some people have gotten upset with me because I call out churches in our city by name because I want you to know where the garbage is. That's part of my protection for you. Word of life is a false gospel prosperity cesspool of filth from the top down. You say, that's really harsh to say. Just take a look at their Bible doctrine, and that'll say everything that you needed to say. That's really harsh. It's my responsibility to protect you against that. It's my responsibility for you to know that if somebody says, hey, you should come to my church, we got a sweet worship band, that you say, hey, I'm not really into that because your doctrine's garbage. I want to help equip you that way. And again, again, we get into the idea of like, well, we're right and nobody else is right. No, that's not the case. There's plenty of Bible-preaching churches on our island. They're just few and far between. But we need to be able to, to protect against false doctrine and false teaching coming into this church. A lady came into our church. We were like all of like six months old at the time she came in. She was just like, hey there, I'm, uh, I'm here to first time at this church, and I want to know, is this a church where I can exercise my spiritual gifts? that's a loaded question, uh, because I'm sure your spiritual gift isn't giving, right? I mean, I'm sure you didn't come in and say, hey, my spiritual gift is giving, and you know, I just want to give. Can, it, can I exercise that here? And I said, what would be your spiritual gift? And she says, uh, I, have this, I have this sense of the Holy Spirit to be able to, to look at people and read them and tell the prophecy of their life. Yeah, we don't do that here. Oh, she was mad as a hornet at me. And she was like, well, I'll find somebody here that wants to hear what God wants for their life. No, you won't. <laughs> yes, I will. I don't need your permission. No, but I'm responsible for protecting this place. And the second you talk to anybody here, you're out the front door. 
Why? That's a really harsh thing to do. I'm responsible for protecting this church and making sure garbage like that doesn't get in. Because here's a, maybe a guy on the back row who's been saved for a week. And she says, hey, do you, the Holy Spirit spoke to me about you this morning uh, as I was making coffee. Would you like to hear what he said? Yeah. You go to church here, I mean, you must know. No, absolutely. So again, it's a responsibility for a pastor to protect the church from false doctrine, false teachers. Uh, pastor's responsibility to protect church unity and a spirit of unity. Again, if there's drama, division in the church, it gets squashed immediately. No questions asked. We're all on the same page. We're all part of the same family. We got each other's back. And if you don't, you get on board or you get out. Period. End of story. And it's my responsibility to protect that and make sure that we all stay on the same page. And again, it's not, I'm not mean with people or unkind in any way. I just sit down and say, hey, maybe we're not the right church for you. If you, you feel like you know you need to, to speak in tongues in the middle of a church service, this is not that kind of church, and you should find a church where you can do that in because you'll never do it here as long as I'm the pastor. Now, that might sound harsh to some people, but that's a protection for our church. And again, my responsibility, somebody has to have that conversation. I don't need a hatchet man to go have that conversation for me. I'm a big boy. I'm a protector of a flock, and I'm going to have that conversation myself. Pastors protect against sin in the church. One of the shameful things that happens in churches today are pastors are complicit in covering up sin. Pastors know of sin in their own church and they hide it, disguise it, bury it. And just know what the Bible says about this. Every single one of those people will, first of all, answer to God for it. Secondly, they're probably going to be found out because the Bible says, he who covers his sin shall not prosper. Guaranteed. That's a Bible promise. And shameful things that happen even in Bible preaching churches where, where uh, sexual assault takes place and people take this person and move them to another ministry or, or try to hide it or cover it up or make excuses for things like that that happen. Hey, it's my responsibility to protect us against sin and if, if there's unrepentant sin in this church, just guarantee it's going to get called out. Not mean, not ugly, not unkind, but because I love Jesus' church so much and I've been given the responsibility of protecting this flock against unrepentant sin. Next, when an unhealthy church grows, unhealthy church grows. We simply multiply the issues in a larger, more unhealthy body. No lie, we've seen, and, and I hope you, that you've seen this because we're part of something special. We've seen explosive growth in our church in the last 90 days. 90 days, really. Again, at the end of the day, it's not, it's not a matter of numbers, but the, the, the beginning of like January, we were averaging somewhere in the ballpark of about 250 people, which is more than we had prior to COVID, which was awesome. End of February, we went, went like 300 one Sunday, and it's just like, holy cow, we had like 300 on like a non-Easter you know, Easter or Christmas Eve. Like, wow, that was crazy. And the next Sunday, we had like 315. And it's just like, wow, that was what a fluke. We, I think we had like 20 kids from Kauai that visited. It's just like, oh, once they leave, we'll be back to like normal. But if you look around on a Sunday morning, normal is now like 330. You know, we had 480 on Easter Sunday, which about made my head explode. Today, today and again, I'm not saying this is not a brag or a boast. This is 100% glory to God. We had 342 people in, in church on Sunday morning. Did you know that that is the highest attendance in the history of our church ever other than Easter Sunday of this year? And what did we do today? It was Mother's Day. You think people came because they thought they were getting donuts? I mean, like, really? <laughs> like, seriously. And so I don't say that, and, and sometimes people say, well, brother, we're so spiritual, we don't even count at our church. Okay, here's the thing. When Jesus lost one sheep, 
from the 99, how did he know it was missing? If he didn't count, right? How would he know that he had one missing if he was just looking out and saying, hey, brother, I think we're all good. I think we're all there. No, there had to be some measure where we numbered the people and, and held them accountable and, and were accountable to God for them. And so, again, we don't, we don't live and die by numbers. We, we've never in the history of our church done anything where we say, hey, how can we get more people through the front door ever? Because, look, if we want to do that, we give away bicycles every week, but then we become the bicycle church, right? And what you get them with is what you keep them with. And so, again, the problem, though, when people chase growth, especially in unhealthy churches, is that if you have a small, unhealthy church and it grows really big, you know what you have? You have a really big, unhealthy church. Your problems don't fix themselves. They only get worse. They only multiply the larger that you get. And so that's why we've we got to make sure that, that as who we call it is a, is a small church. I still consider us a small church. I mean that with every fiber of my being. There wasn't a person here this morning that I did not personally know that was not a first-time guest. And I want to maintain that spirit. Why? Because I'm a shepherd. We need to maintain that spirit here because as we get larger, we need to maintain the small church, hospitable, family, home feel that we have. So many people over the last, just the last six weeks have sent me emails saying, when I came to Huicala, I immediately felt like I had found home. We got to keep that. We've got to keep that special thing that God's doing here and, and put that at the, the forefront and maintain our health as a church. I've got to cruise through these last uh, th- several points, so I'll talk fast if you listen fast. My wife's in the nursery, so she's going to absolutely have my hide. Um, <laughs> pastors are charged with caring for God's flock. <laughs> I'll just be honest. Of the things that I get to do on a weekly basis, probably my least favorite is standing up here and preaching. I, I don't enjoy it. I don't consider myself a good public speaker. Um, I, I, my words run together. I told somebody this morning, I generally try to stay away from coffee on Sunday mornings because coffee gets me amped up. And if you can imagine, as fast as I talk, being amped up on top of that, it would just be a bad, bad recipe. So, but I get fired up about caring for people. I asked God 20 plus years ago to give me a love for people, and he did. And I just want to see people grow. I want to see people helped. If, if, if the Bible has the answers for your life and you're struggling to find out how to put it all together, I want to help you through that. If you're having a bad day, I want to walk with you through that. If you're having a great day, I want to celebrate with you. I want to be a part of the party that you throw. Like, like that's my heart as a pastor. And that's the type of heart that pastors need to have. Again, I don't understand churches where pastors come up and they preach for 20 minutes and then they disappear and you never see them again until the next Sunday and you can't get access to them. You can't be near them. Shepherds need to be with sheep. That's what they do. Shepherds need to know their sheep. That's what they do. And part of that is caring for the flock. Pastors labor in prayer, encouragement, and care. If I know of a need in our church, I want to help meet it however I can. Uh, I pray for every single person in this church every single day. And so I pray for you and I pray for what you got going on. Sometimes they even ask you, how can I pray for you better? So that I know what you got going on so I can pray with more clarity and understanding. But I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I want to be your cheerleader. Because, again, if you're following Jesus, I want to help you. That's what pastors do. Pastors lead the way and make disciples as well. I wish I'd had the foresight several years ago. My discipleship book that I have is, like, tattered and torn to pieces at this point. I wish I'd had the foresight, you know, 10 years ago to write the names of all the people that I'd gone through discipleship with. Because I'd love to look back at all the people that I'd spent months with pouring into their lives, encouraging them to come to Jesus and follow Jesus with everything that they had. 
God probably didn't allow me to do that because it would probably be a source of pride for me to be able to say, hey, look at all the people I discipled, you know? But at the end of the day, it's our responsibility to make disciples. And again, when I say making disciples, I'm not talking about going through a 14-week course where you fill in the blanks and sit across the table from somebody. I'm talking about helping people become committed followers of Christ. Is our discipleship course a way to do that? That's just the on-ramp to get kind of people, get the wheels turning to get that, make that happen. But discipleship is a journey of a lifetime of, of trying better every day to follow Jesus and bring people along with you on the journey. And pastors have to lead the way in making disciples. Again, somebody would never be ordained to the office of a pastor, should not be ordained to the office of a pastor if they have not made disciples. And so again, there has to be visible, tangible fruit that we can look at that this person is worthy of this office because they met the qualifications. Pastors are accountable to God for the stewardship and the leadership of this church, of, of the church. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 17. We don't have to take time to turn there tonight, but uh, I want you to jot that down in your notes. Maybe if you have the Who We Call app, you can see it. But Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. He- Hebrews thirteen seventeen says something that's really heavy that I think most people have never given a, a second thought to. That the pastor will one day stand before God and give an account for your soul. I have to answer to God for you. And I don't know how most pe- pastors deal with this. I don't have a lot of pastor friends I've never so served in a pastoral role before Huikala. But for me, that statement literally keeps me up at night sometimes. Because I'm responsible for this. And, and so it's easy when people want to come in and criticize our music and, and criticize how we do communion, whether they don't like the fact that we do closed communion. It's easy for people to say, yeah, I don't like that. You shouldn't do that. You should do things differently. It's easy when people want to c- criticize our outreach efforts that we have or criticize how I preach and teach and stuff like that. That's fine. At the end of the day, you don't stand before God for this church. I do. And I take that very, very seriously. That if something's wrong in this church, I'm going to fix it immediately because I'm responsible to God for that. We sing some doctrinally untrue song up here. I'm going to stand before God one day for that. You decide you don't want to walk with Jesus anymore and you're going to blow your life up. I'm not just going to wave at you while you blow your life up. I'm going to try to do everything I can to keep you from blowing your life up because I'll stand before God for your soul one day. And here's what the Bible says to to you. Make it easy on me. Make it easy that when I stand before God, I can do it with joy, not with grief. Walk with Jesus and, and be encouraging to your pastor so that one day when he stands before God, he can do it with joy. And so I take that very, very seriously. So again, people call me a micromanager. People say things like, oh, you know, you're so involved in everything that goes on in the church. Not a single person serves in our children's ministry that has not been personally approved. We've never had an usher in our church that was not personally approved by me. In the history of our church, history of our church, five people have preached from this pulpit on a Sunday morning that was not me. Two of them were our deacons. You say, wow, you're really controlling of the pulpit. No, I stand before God for what's preached from this pulpit. I'm not just have some dude that's cruising through town and says, hey, you need a preacher on Sunday morning. I say, yeah, sure, I'd love a break and let him get up here and say some nonsense. I'll stand before God before that. And so I want you to understand how heavy that is. So many times people just see the churches and I show up for a couple hours a week and hear some preaching and go home. It's so much heavier than that. Oh, I like that pastor. He's a good preacher. He keeps me entertained. It's so much bigger than that. 
well, I don't like the way they do this, then, then, then give it to the Lord or find a different church because that pastor stands before God for that church and he'll give an account for it. I take that very seriously. Godly spiritual pastoral leadership is not about, is about serving, not being served. Again, if Jesus gave us the example of that, he didn't come to, to be served, but to give his life a ransom for many. So again, when you have a, you've created a culture in a church where the pastor is kind of like this celebrity status where like, oh, everybody wants to be friends with the pastor because he's super cool and you know, all this other stuff, that's not biblical. When, again, when you have a pastor who's under the, the spotlight but you never see him outside of the spotlight, that's not biblical. And so again, pastor's responsibility is to serve other people, not be served. Man, if, if garbage needs to be picked up in the church building, I'm going to pick it up. Garbage needs to be taken out of the bathroom, I'm going to take it out. P- people see me all the time on a Sunday morning while everybody else is singing. I'm walking through back here picking up leaves that have blown in from the back door because it drives me bananas. How could I say, hey, you, go get that leaf? Yeah, I could, but I don't. You know why? Because I'm here to serve. I'm, I'm not any better than anybody else. And again, when we look at the flow chart of the church, Jesus Christ is at the top. Everybody else is at the bottom. There's not like God, Jesus, pastor, deacons, and then everybody else. It's Jesus at the top, everybody else down here. Now, everybody else down here has different functions that we perform for sure because we're a body. But nobody's above anybody else, and, and pastors are here to serve. I can't wait until I finish preaching that because I'm going to get that white piece of paper that's there on the floor there. I'm going to clean it up myself. Don't pick it up. Don't, don't pick it up. Don't pick it up. I want to. Man, it's making it hard to concentrate. People that are in ministry for personal gain, the Bible has a word for that. They're called hirelings, not shepherds. Oh, I want to be a pastor because I I have a lot to say. Sit down until you're ready to serve, son. Oh, I want to be a pastor. You just picked up that. I told you not to pick up the paper. You don't even listen. You don't even listen in church. My goodness. You want all of the applause, but none of the work? You're a hireling, not a pastor. Sit down until you're ready to serve. And so again, when it comes to the office of a pastor, it's a servant. If you're in it for any other reason, the Bible calls you a hireling. And again, that's somebody who's in it for their own personal gain. Hirelings don't last very long in ministry because they're always looking for the next step up. I want you to know that as your pastor, I'm not looking for my next ministry opportunity that's a better suit for me. I asked God when we planted Who We Call a Church to let me have 25 years here as his pastor. I'll make nine years this October. I still got some gas in the tank left. I'm not looking for another opportunity. I'm not looking for more pay. I'm not looking for a a nicer living situation. I'm here to serve. And look, if I was trying to get rich or make money or make a career, I wouldn't be a pastor. And people who, that's their mentality, they shouldn't be pastors. Again, when I had the opportunity to to interview Trey for for coming on, I, I told him, you're not coming on in a pastoral role yet. My goal is that one day we would ordain you as a pastor after we see whether or not you fit the qualifications. But like, hey, look, I know you, you're a good dude. You come from a good church, but I don't know whether or not you're fit to be a pastor yet or not. And we're going to watch and wait. But as we talked through, like, hey, here's what this job is going to entail and things like that. And I said, here's what we can offer as far as like salary and, and compensation, things like that. He didn't bat an eye on any of that. And he's like, okay, is this where I say yes? Well, you might want to talk it over with your wife and find out if like, like this, no, is this where I say yes because I'm ready to serve? And he came here with a heart and a spirit to serve. That's the idea of being a servant of Christ. And too many pastors get in it for the wrong reasons. 
and their hirelings, not pastors. Office of the pastor is a position worthy of respect and honor. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labor is worthy of his reward. That doesn't mean that our, our pastors are celebrities. It doesn't mean that they're untouchable. It doesn't mean that they, they need you know, their own personal driver or someone to, to go and get their meals for them or to shine their shoes or things like that. That's not pastoral leadership. It means it's an office of respect. And, and I'll just shoot you straight. Again, this is a personal preference for me and every pastor is different. It does not bother me when people call me by my first name. My mom named me Anthony. I think it's a terrible name, but I'll take it because it's all I got, okay? And so when people call me by my first name, I'm not offended by that, or you need to respect me, or you need to call me pastor because you're disrespecting me or anything like that. That's not it. And so even when it comes down to, now if you say like, I'm not willing to give this pastor respect and call him a pastor, that might be disrespectful, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to lose sleep over that. But you need to understand that the office of the pastor is an office that's worthy of respect. It's a person that has fulfilled God's requirements to fulfill the office. This person has been qualified by God himself and by the word of God, has been identified by the church as an appropriate, acceptable leader for our church, and we should take what he says with some, some weight. The, the guidance and counsel that your pastor gives you should carry a little bit more weight than your unsaved neighbor has to give you advice. Hey, I'm concerned about the place that you're moving, that there's no Bible-preaching church there. Oh, well, I talked to my mom, and she said we could just watch their church online, and it would be the same thing. Yeah, I don't know that that's great advice. Well, my mom said it, and she's, she's never wrong. Oh, okay, that's fine. I'm sure it'll work out fine. When it comes to honor and respect, it's like, hey, I want to make sure that, that I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing the shepherding role that you've been given in my life. One of the godliest men in our church sat down with me yesterday and said, hey, pastor, I know I've been telling you about some things I want to do with my life and my career and my family and stuff like that, but I, I, I stopped myself the other day because I realized I never really asked you what you thought about that, and I feel really badly about that, and I need to get some counsel from you to make sure that you think I'm on the right track. And I appreciated that spirit because he never, uh, when we talked before, he didn't come in and say, hey, here's, here's what I'm going to do. He actually generally had a spirit like, hey, here's what I'm thinking. What are your thoughts on that? But he came to you and he said, I want to make sure that you understand that I don't want to make a decision that you're not on board with. Now, again, as your pastor, I don't want to tell you what kind of car you need to drive, what color you should get, or anything like that. I have no desire to do any of those things. But, but guys and gals, if you're planning on dating somebody, I think your pastor should be in the loop on that, not because I'm trying to run your life, because I have a little bit more wisdom than you do when it comes to things like that. I think when you're making major career decisions or making major family decisions, things like that, it's good idea to just run it past your pastor. He's seen a lot. He's, he has some wisdom behind him. According to the scriptural qualifications of just the office, he should have some guidance that you would find helpful. And so that's the idea of, of having respect and honor for the office of the pastor. Honor doesn't mean a culture of idolization or celebrity culture. Those types of things are sinful and idolatrous. And the higher that we place someone on a pedestal, the further that they have to fall. And what we begin to idolize will eventually demonize, and that has no place. Our only, our only king is King Jesus. But again, if you've been in churches before that have an unhealthy culture of pastoral leadership, you might not understand that. I've been in churches before, no lie where the pastor's preaching about how he's David and you're the, the children of Israel and he's responsible to, to be your king and to fight for you and fight with you and that he is a picture uh, of, of David. 
And I think to myself, have you ever studied the Bible? David is a picture of Jesus. Like, like, no, you don't get to be the king that everybody bows down to. That's Jesus' role. And so again, we don't want to create any type of culture uh, where somebody's better than somebody else or somebody, uh, you know, doesn't talk to the pastor because, you know, he, he doesn't like to have people around him or we don't have rules of who we call, like, don't look the pastor in the eye when you walk past him. Like, don't, you, you laugh, there are churches like that. And it's embarrassing because you're not a pastor, you're a fake. And so we don't want to create any type of culture like that. But again, there is a thing about honor and respect. Honor is a recognition and appreciation for God-given authority in your life. Hey, look, the people I know in my life that love me and pray for me every single day and really looking out for me, I appreciate that. And I want to show some honor and respect to those people. I have a pastor myself, Pastor Paul Chapel, Lancaster Baptist Church, Lancaster, California. I'm not a member of the church there. I was for 10 years, but he continues to have the ability to shepherd and guide and protect and speak truth into my life. And I love him and appreciate him for that. I consider him a, a dear friend of mine. We, we text at least once a week. We talk on the phone once a month. We try to meet up at least once a year face-to-face to talk about life and ministry and things that God's doing and things like that. I wanna, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. I want to run past you and see what your thoughts are on it and get some guidance from you. Everybody needs a pastor. And I have a deep-seated admiration and respect for him. Is he a perfect man? No, not at all. And again, if you stick it under a pastor for long enough, you'll be able to pick out their faults really quickly. But again, there's a level of appreciation and honor and respect that's given to those who are willing to stick their neck out for our own spiritual well-being. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.